agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hugged the government love. The government hugged the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Ken, I was thinking about your title this week. I've brought it up several times. I'm wondering if we should not start introducing you as the king of the collective. What do you think about... You think about that for your new title. You know, we got the liberty. I don't know. We got collectivism. I don't know. What do you think? Well, that probably will fit the position I will take today when we talk about student loans. But I don't know. I don't know that that's how I want to be pigeonholed generally. <laughs> yeah. See, I in in my defense, I was going to use that later as a, like a fun. No, I was teasing. But yeah, no, that's true. I mean, we're going to talk about student loan forgiveness, and yeah, you're gonna you're gonna take this leftist money doesn't matter policy i know i'm ready for it i'm yep, ready for yep. it yeah um, that, that's definitely where i am headed today but i don't know that that's where i always <laughs> want to pigeonhole myself into being headed <laughs> so for today only we have collectivist ken and yep. uh I, you know but um <laughs> so uh listeners what we've got going on this week if you can't already figure it out we're going to start uh, with student loan forgiveness we're going to be moving on to talking about this past primaries on tuesday so much going on there. We're going to talk about this really weird case uh, from Cleveland State University. Just left the district court uh, on the violation of Fourth Amendment and, and remote proctoring exams. I think that I'm a professor, so maybe I think it's more interesting than everybody else. We'll talk about California's gas ban, uh, and, the, and then depending on time, we'll also talk about some book banning uh, items coming out of here out of Oklahoma, uh, and maybe even get to a few more items. But that's all dependent on time. I also want to take a moment to thank our newest executive producer of The Politics, guys. He's going to get mentioned at the end, but I'm going to mention him at the beginning as well, and that is Don Oglesby. Don, thank you so much for becoming an executive uh, producer. We love that. Uh, So we're going to take a brief break. We're going to come back, and we're going to chat about student loan forgiveness. So this week, Biden made news with a debt forgiveness program. So if we look directly at what's been released, I've taken a look at it. It's a three-part plan for what he calls a low-to-middle-income for low-to-middle-income borrowers. I'm going to take issue with that in a moment, but that is at least the way it's being billed. Uh, he notes that colleges have drastically increased in price. Uh, and as a matter of fact, the accounting on this is true. Uh, in, in some cases, it has tripled accounting for inflation. So not including inflation, uh, those kinds of prices in some areas have gone up triple. So what do we do about this? Well, uh, Biden's order will uh, indicate that the Department of Education is going to provide up to $20,000 in debt cancellation for Pell Grant recipients for those earning single no more than $125,000 or $250,000 for married couples. Meanwhile, student loan repayments for those who were not for the Pell Grant, same numbers, will be at $10,000. Meanwhile, student loan payments will be paused through December 31st because up at this point, there isn't actually a rollout procedure. So we don't quite know when that's going to happen. But the assumption here is it's going to happen before the pause is going to end at the end of December. So theoretically, we're talking about something happened probably in November, uh, if I'm right. So what about the cost and how's that, how's that going to go? Well, the goal here is 
to, well, we don't know how it's going to get paid for on that front. But the long-term goal, at least according to the order, is to increase Pell Grants and to eventually make community college free. Now, Biden's team has spent a lot of time explaining how this money is going to go to the poor. And I'm not uber shocked about this. I think this is one of the things that we're going to debate about a little bit, Ken, um, is, is that you know, a big portion of the defense in his, uh, in his handout is, look, most of the money is going to go to people un- making under $75,000. Don't pay any attention to the top end caps. Uh, and right now, although there isn't a specific price tag, it looks like the bottom end of that price tag is going to be $300 billion, um, but it could be in the range of about $600 billion. So let's call it $300 billion for now, give or take another $300 billion. What do you think about this, Ken? I mean, you already, you already, you already kind of said you're, you're for it, so tell us why. Yeah, I'm for it. And I think the, the best ways to tell you why would be to try to respond separately to what I hear, have heard as separate uh, criticisms of it. Because I, th- I think there, I've, I've sort of heard three flavors of criticisms, which each are independent of each other, um, but I don't think any of them are right. Um, so I've, I've heard the argument that this will cause inflation. I don't that's right. Um, I've heard the okay, argument that um, uh, it, it's, he doesn't have the legal—I'm legal, oh, sorry, what— did you say something? Again, after you said after you said inflation, there was a big pause, yep. and I'm not sure what happened there. And then you came back in. So just just start with the, start the three with, things, okay. and we'll go from there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I've heard three different arguments against it, and I don't think any of them are are right. Um, I've heard the argument that the debt forgiveness will cause inflation. I, I don't think that's true. I don't think there's any economic model that would suggest that it is true. Um, I, I've heard that the president doesn't have the legal authority to do it unilaterally. Um, I was most concerned about that one, but I did take a look at the the Secretary of Education's legal memorandum on that, and um, I was satisfied that um, it, it uh, points to legal authority from a... It's confusing because there's more than one statute called the HEROES Act, but the HEROES Act of uh, 2003 which is a different statute than the HEROES Act of um, 2021. Um, and uh, um, I, I think that's right, that the legal authority is there. And then I've, I've heard the argument that it's somehow unfair um, to all the people in the country who aren't receiving it. Um, and I, I think that's actually ridiculous. So those are, those are the, I guess, because I think all the criticisms of it are wrong. That's, and, and because obviously it will help the people who are receiving it. Um, I, I, I think it was a good idea. Well, actually, that's fascinating. So I, I'm actually going to push back on two of those because I agree with two of them. Okay. But I have a different third one. So maybe we'll start with my unique oh. third one. And then we can go okay. from there, right? Because you know, uh, And then I disagree one, one of the ones, too. So we'll, we'll agree on one. And have, here's my unique one. So the one that's fundamentally problematic for me is, is that if you take a look at the long-term effects of what he's doing here, this is not actually going to change the cost of college in a positive way, right? So doing this is not going, as a matter of fact, even the Atlantic this week uh, uh, agreed on this front is, is that the cost of what happens here is the amount of money in the system. So by increasing the amount of money in the system, put aside any other effects we're talking about, this isn't going to lower the cost of college. In fact, it's going to have the exact opposite effect on that. It's going to increase the cost of college. Now, I think that's the reason that Biden is putting forward that he wants Congress to change other things. So while this is going to be, a, I think, a short-term uh, vote buy, it doesn't actually – like so if you're in college right now, the only thing this will probably do to you is increase your overall costs down the road. 
because again, you're you're going to be flooding the system with additional money, which is actually, in fact, one of the things that Mike and I agree on when it comes to higher education is you target all of the spending towards just and only education, and what happens is you increase the overall cost. This is just going to be a four hundred dollar. $400 billion you put in, and what you're going to get out on the other side in the short term, not for the individuals getting it, but for the short term for those who are still in, are going to be higher prices. So what do you say to that response? Because I mean, that, that's been a pretty consistent, okay. uniform finding, I think, both from the left and the yeah. right on economic policy. So I, I actually, I hadn't heard it that way, but I'll respond to it. I, I would, so I, I think that subdivides the, my inflation thought into two halves. So I, I had thought that people were arguing that this would release a lot of extra money into the economy and cause uh, um, in inflation in the in the general economy, but what and that's you're a separate argument. Is a I think different. you're right, and this argument, this is right? a different so, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what you're saying is this is going to um, turn over um, a, a lot of money to to higher ed, and that would somehow um, increase the price of higher ed. I I think that's just factually not right. Um, it doesn't actually turn over any extra money to higher ed. We're only talking about money that's already been collected by higher ed over the course of the past 10 years, and that's already been paid for by the United States Department of Education. Um, Not one penny more is going to higher ed. All of this money is going to the students who would otherwise have to repay it to the Department of Education. But the Department of Education has already paid it to higher ed. So I, I think there's literally no um, inflationary pressure on higher ed. There's no extra money go- going to higher ed. But also, if there was extra money going to higher ed, I think that would be counter. That would run counter to inflation in higher ed prices. That um, you know, in the past, um, when taxpayers used to subsidize a, a higher percentage of the cost of higher ed, higher ed was cheaper or or in fact free. You know, I heard I heard Mitch McConnell um, criticizing this 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 um, th- th- this debt relief. Mitch McConnell went to the University of Louisville when it was free. 100% tuition free, 100% paid by taxpayers. And that wasn't so uncommon. The, the University of Cincinnati was like that. All the city colleges in New York were like that. The whole, the whole city college movement around the country, uh, most of which have later been absorbed into um, state university systems, but they weren't originally. Um, th- these, were all, these were all tuition-free universities paid for totally by taxpayers. So I think if you, if you put enough money into an education system as we put into K through 12 education, you could actually put enough in there that there's there's it greatly reduces the cost to to, to students who go there. We'll set aside K through twelve for just a second because I, I I have some separate arguments for that. But here on this front, I mean, on the one hand, I have some agreement with you, right? So yeah, of course you could do what we used to do in the past, which is we'd have public schools that were effectively a hundred percent funded by uh, state dollars and thereby. You're, you're releasing them from all market pressure. So, yes, you're absolutely right. If you release things from market pressures, then, of course, the kind of behaviors and the outcome and costs are going to be a different kind of modeling mechanism. However, though, where I'm going to have to part company with you is that's not what we're doing right now. We do have them tied to market pressures. And it is a pretty straightforward economic process that says, so you're right, we're not directly giving money uh, to uh, uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the educational system. However, in the same way, by making borrowing and borrowing easier and by kind of guaranteeing that we will cover those debts on that side in the same way that we did with housing, that makes and changes the housing market. And in the same way, this will change the education market. So you're not wrong in saying, hey, you know, Mitch McConnell went under a different system back in the day, and we could opt to go back to that kind of system. True. 
don't disagree. However, we're not in that system. We live in a market system, and we see that same process play out. I mean, I mean, compare this to 2008 with housing prices. Did when we bail out Fannie and Freddie? Is this some? Are we helping immediate homeowners? Yes. Did we fundamentally change the uh, value of market houses as a, as a downstream effect? Also, yes. So I think to say that there's not going to be that downstream effect is just to ignore the basic underlying economic arguments. Now, again, we could have an argument about should we allow it to be subject to market forces? But since it is, I mean, this seems like well, it is, obvious. But, but, well, but nothing, of course it will. Nothing's been changed because you're, you're acting as if there's been some um, legislation that has changed anything going forward. That, that didn't happen. Right. There, there's only so I think there should be and I'd be happy to defend that there should be. But all that's happened so far is not one single penny has been allocated from the United States government to higher ed. All, all, all the, the prices of higher ed were, were the prices that were set in a market context over the past decade um, or more. In some cases, some people have student debt that's more than a decade old, but mostly over mm-hmm. the past decade. And the money was already paid from the United States Department of Education in the form of student loans to those universities. And the universities are not, um, you know, in, in, in this transaction, they're not part of it. There's, there's debt that's owed to the government. That's between the borrower and the government. The, the borrower has, has forgiven, the, the government has forgiven some of that debt and given it back to the borrower. None of it goes to the universities. Yeah, I mean, so... True, but the fact that you don't have money exchanging hands doesn't mean that you don't impact the price of things, right? So, for example, my derivative on a market security doesn't mean that my money isn't changing hands with the person who owns the stock, but it undoubtedly changes the value of the stock. So, to suggest that just because the money doesn't head directly one-to-one to to the institution in question doesn't affect the uh, cost calculus for the institution – doesn't seem like a very strong argument for me. I think it's a absolutely bulletproof argument because the <laughs> universities um, are not um, able to increase the size of their budgets. Right, this doesn't let them increase the size of their budgets. Every every university, and you know, there, also there's a lot of public universities, and there's the extra wrinkle there that public universities, the the tuition level setting, and and the and the the budgetary allocations. Um, are not done in a purely market context. They're done in a political context. But also, even so for it, the private oh, universities, even for the private universities, they they don't have. This doesn't give them any leeway to um, increase the size of their budgets going forward either. So let's say, for example, uh, that tomorrow, once again, uh, we wiped debt, some debt clean out of for Fannie uh, and Freddie. You, you don't think that would change the housing market at all, despite the fact that. The same as we're talking about here, no dollars had changed hands between uh, lenders and borrowers. Well, I, I'd have to it's know an what the changes are. I mean, in, in this case, there, we're talking about in the in the actual debt forgiveness for student loans, we're talking about entirely backward looking debt relief with no forward looking component. Um, I, I'm not sure if that's your hypo on, on Freddie or Fannie, but um, but if that was the hypo, then I would say, yes, that's not going to affect housing markets. I guess we'd have to disagreement there. I mean, to, to I mean, of course, there's no forward-thinking policy, but to wipe away debt changes the calculus for what you think can be spent and for what you're going to calculate may or may not be done in the future. Like, I mean, that you are always like 
So when, we, when you take a student on, as you've noted, you are looking at a transaction in the sense of I'm getting money on the basis of how likely I, might, I am to get that money back, right? Anytime you're, you're, you're kind of lending in that question money. So if the government says, hey, we're going to back these kinds of loans in this particular way, even if you only do it once, that changes the calculus of the market. I don't agree. I mean, I think, first of all, every single student that's benefiting from this debt forgiveness at the time that they had to make a market decision, which was over the past decade or more, um, they thought they'd have to pay it all back. So so their market decisions, in fact, were not influenced by the the idea that they would get debt relief. They didn't have a, a, a reasonable basis to believe that they'd ever get debt relief. And it probably never occurred to most of them that they would. So that didn't affect their market decisions. And I don't think it could be affecting the market decisions of anyone going forward, because I, I don't think they can be counting on, on this happening again. Okay. Well, let's move on to another one of our one of the points. And this is one where you had already brought it up and one that I was going to bring up. So you had pointed to the, you know, does President Biden have the uh, authority to do this one? This was going to be one of my questions as well. And you were right to point to the Higher Education Relief of Opportunity for Students, or correctly, the HEROES Act, right? And you're right, there's a couple of them. But the one here that I think is the most salient is the 2003, which is also what I think you had mentioned a minute ago as well. Just to kind of put it into perspective for everybody else, what this law basically did, George W. Bush is the one who signs it in law. It's designed, and he even argued it was necessary to help students, in his words, and institutions affected by war, military operations, or other national emergencies. So you had made the argument a minute ago that you thought that the war, military, operation, other national emergencies applied in this situation. So I'd love to hear you kind of take that a little bit deeper before I, I make any kind of critique of it, Ken. Yeah, well, first of all, I, I want to concede that I think this one is a very arguable point on both sides. And, you know, whereas I'm, I'm much more confident in the economic analysis, in my side of the economic analysis that we we're just laying out, <laughs> I really I, I really think on, on the legal analysis, which is, you know, I suppose more within my actual area of expertise, I think there's arguments on both sides. But but I, I think that um, under under prevailing administrative law doctrines in which the agency that's um, charged with enforcing or administering a statute still gets deference if there's um, in its interpretations of the statute, if there's more than one reasonable interpretation. Um, I, I think it is a reasonable interpretation, not the only possible interpretation, um, to say that um, the national emergency of COVID, which actually was declared by President Trump twice and then already by President Biden, um, that the national emergency of COVID provided the justification under this um, statute uh, for for delaying um, uh, payments. And so President Trump twice issued orders delaying student loan payments because of that national emergency. President Biden did it uh, once before. Um, that it's it's the same national emergency. It's it's been properly invoked. It's a genuine national emergency. Um, and then the, the remedies that are available um, under the statute are not limited to just tolling the payments. Um, it's doing anything um, that, that's necessary to ensure that the emergency doesn't cause student loan debtors to be placed in a worse position financially uh, than they otherwise would have been in. So, um, you know, I, I will acknowledge that it's a broad and aggressive reading of that to say, well, you know, one way to ensure that the debtors are, have not been placed in a worse position financially by the COVID crisis is to relieve them of a certain amount of debt um, if they're not making a certain income. Um, but I think that's well within the text of what the statute provides. 
And I think it's a reasonable interpretation of the statute. So that that it's it's a lot of the critics will ignore the fact that this statute exists and just pretend that Biden is trying to rely on some kind of an inherent presidential authority, which I would agree that he wouldn't have any inherent presidential authority to do this. But I, I think he has this authority under this statute to read this statute this way. Yeah, see, I mean, I, I think we both agree on the statute and where it's coming from. We're going to disagree a little bit on the scope and the nature of the national emergency. I'm going to come from even a broader standpoint as a presidential scholar and suggest that one of the fundamental issues, and, and I have argued this long before this particular instance, so I'm, I'm confident in my at least consistency on this point, which is that presidents always want to expand the idea of when they can use their power so that they can get things done when, the, when Congress is not getting things done. And that has led, because both parties end up doing it, to an expanse of understanding of what presidential power is. And every time we take these kinds of, as you even noted, hey, I, I recognize we can't necessarily have quite this, you know, this is a more expanded notion of this argument. You keep doing that over and over and over again from president to president to president, and we see the kinds of trajectories of presidential power that we see now. So, yeah, I mean, is, could this potentially be inside of that reading? Yeah, maybe. Uh, is, is it an expansive reading of the HEROES Act? Definitely. And that's a problem because that is a continuing trend in American politics for both parties to try to fix their problems by relying on presidential unitary power to get things done they can't do in Congress. Congress couldn't get this done, and so Biden's stepping in. So here's my reading of it, and it's a little more uh, crass, right? Congress can't get this done because they don't have the votes to get this done. The Democrats needed to get more things done than what they've gotten done so far. So they want something done for the midterm. So Biden does what presidents do. He rides to the rescue. He reads a statute more broadly than it probably ought to be read or definitely was intended to be read. But that's what presidents do. And he does it at this particular moment in the hopes that he's going to buy votes for the midterm elections. He's not putting it into effect now because he recognizes even if I'm wrong and there are some negative effects, I won't have to deal with any of those negative effects until after the election. That's, it, it's a clean, simple, and that's a terrible way to exercise presidential power. And it's just a blatantly political play. So if he really wanted to just do this, he would have this go into effect more rapidly. It would be apparent what the process was going to be more quickly. He could have done that. He's delaying it for political reasons because he knows Congress can't get it done. What's your response to that? Well, I agree with most of what you said until you got to the very end. So I, 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 in terms of putting it into effect immediately, that's the part I'm going to disagree with. I, he did put it into effect immediately. It's already been in effect, right? Nobody, nobody has paid any student loan payments since March of 2020. No, but he, he's not releasing the mechanism by which it's going to happen until November, December. But that's not going to be a change of the status quo. In fact, that's going to be, uh, the change is going to be that people are going to have to start paying student loan payments again that that's the change yeah but um, what i'm saying nope. is by not by not having the by not having the actual loan forgiveness go into effect until after the midterms it is a totally a hedge against any potential uh, t uh, bad effects from it so let's assume we don't we're right or wrong one way or the other we won't know yeah. until after the election all he gets is the beautifulness of a i'm running to the rescue on my white horse here it is 
and he no. won't have to own any potential negative effects. Now, maybe you're right. Maybe there won't be any. No, we do. But know. The, it's the, awfully the, convenient the, the, that, that, that they're all going to fall if they're going to fall, not even potentially until after the election in November. I mean, it's, it's too loan, beautifully timed to not be purposeful. The loan forgiveness has already been in effect for two and a half years. That is the status quo. Every single student loan debtor has been, for all practical purposes, functionally relieved of 100% of their debt, uh, much more than $10,000, for the last two and a half years. And so that status quo is just going to continue for another few months. And that, you know, that's absolutely necessary in order to do the transition because of the... Um, the, the income caps, you know, they, they could have implemented it uh, uh, faster if they didn't have these income caps, but it's impossible to implement it faster if you're going to say people aren't eligible for it if they earn over a certain income because the, the Department of Education doesn't know what, what incomes people earn. And they, and they need to, you know, have a, a, a way of collecting that information and making those adjustments. And uh, also because of the complexity of... Um, Students can get more than ten thousand if they if they were Pell Grant students while they were in college, and also the complexity that I think some students, um, if they were still taken as dependents on their parents' income, then it's going to go by their parents' income rather than by their own income. Um, so I don't see how you can implement that any faster than three months. But I I also think it's not true to say that um, this is going to delay the impact of the forgiveness until until uh, full implementation. Um, the impact of the forgiveness has already been the same for the two and a half years that the, the debt has been told. The other parts of what you're saying, I, I agree. I wish Congress was more functional and not completely dysfunctional. Um, I think it would be better if Congress um, could legislate solutions to problems um, rather than, you know, doing the minimum that they do, which is sometimes they delegate authority to the president to um, to implement solutions to problems. Sometimes they don't even do that. And then there's there's no solutions to problems. But we do have a completely dysfunctional Congress. We do have a Congress that um, uh, can't respond to things that large majorities want. And um, and we do have a, a legal uh, regime that has developed uh, over 100 years or so um, in which it, it is generally permissible for Congress to um, delegate some policymaking discretion to the executive branch to write sort of blank checks to the executive branch that the executive branch can then cash later. Um, and, you know, if Congress doesn't do that, then the president can't act. But this is one of those many cases where Congress did do that. Yeah, and then and then the president pushes the limits of what that was the intention of that statute was. Well, he waited a long time. And then time, future presidents um, move from that to move forward. I, I don't just mean just him. This is not just a particular critique of Biden. But but, no, but I, that I slow was... glacier build, you know, we all every particular side always makes the argument, well, I really wish that Congress could not, you know, do the thing that I want, or I really wish that Congress wouldn't behave the way that it behaves. I really wish that Congress was more uh, fast acting. Uh, but then, but we do is what we see is slowly but surely we see to having a, 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 a true democratic form of government to having more and more of a unilateral uh, uh, power. Uh, um, uh, Gene yeah. Healy wrote a phenomenal book about this under uh, George W. Bush, and back then. Uh, we, you know, when the Heroes Act was in effect, Democrats would have been on board with me and Republicans were were against me. But in this particular instance, right, it's the other way around. Because why? Because it's Biden and he's doing student loan debt. So, of course, we need him to, you know, overcome a Congress that can't, quote unquote, get its job done, which means pass the things I want it passed when I want them passed. 
Well, Congress did pass this HEROES Act of 2003 that did give the president authority to um, adjust or forgive uh, student debt. And I think, I think, you know, I think we're in second best world here, right? The, the, the best thing would be if Congress would make policy. Um, the second best thing, um, is, which is where we are, is that Congress can't do it, so the president makes policy. The the worst would be if nobody could make policy. You know, if if we had a, a well, until the other party holds power. Well, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean. I, I thought you were pausing there, and and I I interrupted. No, no, my apologies. No, no, I, I, it was a good point. The the um, I, I think that's right. It's 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 that's why it's second best, right? So let's let's say you know we're going to have a presidential election in 2024. Um, I'm going to assume that Congress is going to remain totally dysfunctional. Um, I imagine that it's the case that if if Biden gets reelected, we may see another round of debt forgiveness. And if a Republican gets elected, we will not see another round of debt forgiveness. Um, I think that the very fact that that could be decided by a presidential election is second best to having that decided by a, a congressional election. And uh, the worst would be if if the public wants uh, this kind of debt forgiveness and it's completely impossible for it to happen at any level of government, even though that's something that the public wants. So I, I think, you know, having having I agree with you that it would be better if Congress could do these things. But I, I can't go all the way to saying that, you know, no elections should ever be able to accomplish anything at any level. So I do think it's better for presidential elections to be able to accomplish something than for no election to be able to accomplish anything. Where I'm probably going to still agree is you consider that being second best. But I'd say that there's actually comes points where you're breaking the fundamental nature of the system. And that is if when you have systems, I mean, the, the, the underlying goal, and, and you know, this is something that we're going to, we're going to try to take on in our uh, midweek shows for supporters. We're going to be going, going through the Constitution. You know, despite the specific ways one might read the Constitution, the idea that the mechanism for levying taxes and policy on money making was clearly, clearly intended to reside in Congress. And even more specifically, look at Article 1, dealing with the House when it comes to these kinds of revenue bills. So to say that it's second best I don't necessarily agree in that sense because there are some things that if, when you give them up institutionally, you're not going to second best. You're actually getting rid of the actual fundamental nature of the democratic system itself. And, and, and you know, and I understand as and you probably I can understand you making the argument and say, well, this isn't that moment. And 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 but the problem is, is there it's it's one of those of. At which moment does your head have a full head of hair, right? How many hairs do you specifically have to have, right? The old, you know, the beard argument. How many, how many, how many hairs to beard? And I, I don't know how to answer that question. What I can say is that these kinds of moments aren't just second best. They are fundamental moments that are breaking, that break our system. It's not as if we're having a second best system. It's that we're, we're destroying the system we have because we don't like the outcomes that we have in in, in the deliberative body. Yeah, I I, I think the, the 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 concern is legitimate, but I I think there's um, you're not quite taking account of the actual um, the, the way administrative law works. So the the leading doctrine in administrative law uh, is called the Chevron doctrine. I know you know about that, and and that that's a doctrine that that addresses this question of you know how much can a president do unilaterally, um, and the answer is if Congress has enacted a statute that um, is susceptible of more than one reading about whether it gives the president authority to do something or not, 
um, then the courts should defer to the president's um, reading of it. Now, that is a lenient and generous and deferential standard that does give a lot of authority to presidents, but it does not give infinite authority to presidents and it does not break the system because if there's no statute that can reasonably be read to authorize a presidential action, then um, under the Chevron doctrine, that action is still going to be um, unlawful and unconstitutional. So here, you know, we do have a statute, the HEROES Act. I, I would agree with you, it's susceptible of more than one reading. But I think that very much means that um, we haven't lost control of our democracy. We've we, There has to be this statute, and the president has to have a reasonable reading of the statute, even if it's not an inevitable reading of the statute. And so that's, you know, enough uh, uh, d enough preservation of democracy and separation of powers um, for basically, again, what I'm going to call second best world that, you know, if we're trying to preserve some form of democracy during a time when Congress has allowed itself to grow totally dysfunctional, um, I, I think that's a, a reasonable um, second best approach. I'm going to ask one last question on this. And I honestly, this is not a, I, I, I'm not positive of the answer. So I'm curious. When is the last time the court have invoked the Chevron doctrine to strike down a presidential action? I'm not. Oh, well, there was a huge case um, uh, this term, um, the the um, West Virginia versus EPA case um, on on Biden's greenhouse gases orders. Where they were. Uh, that's down. what I thought. So that would have been the last time, right? Well, that's only that's actually like the the second to most recent decision that ever came out of the United States Supreme yeah. Court on any subject. Yeah. And, no, and I, just, I just want to make sure I wasn't wrong. I, that wasn't a criticism yeah. of the, being the. Uh, yeah. So you know, if, if I if I if it seemed happened. like I was I wasn't making any other assumption based on time. Yeah. I was making sure I was right. That was the most yeah. recent one, right? And, and okay. of course, um, so, uh, and of course, famously, this term lower lower court judges also struck down a lot of the mask mandates. That's okay. That's that was the okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, that was an honest question, Ken. I didn't have, yeah, uh, okay. there was no, uh, yeah. uh, there, yeah. there was no set, like I was trying to say, there was no setup on that one. No, in, but in, what we're going to have to do that, now, though. If I could yeah, say yes. one thing, I think the contemporary Supreme Court, um, which is very partisan, um, is likely to strike down a lot of President Biden's orders under that doctrine. Not that they would strike down a Republican president's orders under that doctrine, but I'd lay better than 50-50 odds they are going to strike down this um, uh, student debt relief order. I actually think it will be struck down by the Supreme Court. Um, uh, that was going to be my last only, question for yeah, you, but you're getting yeah, there already only, anyway. Go ahead, go ahead, 50-50. Yeah, not, 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 not because they would strike it down if, if he'd been a Republican president, but only on a partisan basis, I think it's going to be struck down. Okay. Well, see, I, that was, that was going to be my last question on that. But we're going to need to take a pause because we, we, we've gotten about halfway through the show. Uh, we're going to take a brief break and we'll be right back. So, Ken, this past week, we also had a bunch of primaries on Tuesday, including out here in my home state of Oklahoma. Uh, but additionally, maybe more importantly or maybe more tellingly for the country, uh, we had both in New York and in Florida, Charlie Crist is, uh, is going up against, against uh, Ron DeSantis. Not again against Ron DeSantis, but again against Republicans. He's run a couple of times unsuccessfully uh, against Republicans. More recently, um, against now um, uh, Senator, I'm blanking on his name suddenly, former uh, governor of Florida, who's now a senator. Scott. 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 Rick, Rick Scott. Yes. Uh, Scott. Uh, and then on Tuesday, we also saw in New York maybe perhaps the power of the abortion issue to mobilize Democratic voters 
Uh, we also saw uh, Maloney uh, uh, lose in a redistricting uh, to uh, Nadler. So what did you – what were the interesting things that you saw? There was a few for me. I think some of mine are a little closer to home. So I'll, I'll start with you, Ken. Yeah, I, you know, I've, I've actually been more interested in the various um, special elections than in the, the primaries. Um, you know, the primaries we've talked about a lot, and I think the, the trend more or less continued that in Republican primar- primaries, Trump candidates were winning more often than not, though not always. Um, but I think in special elections, you mentioned, I think, New York 19 in particular, um, the uh, the 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 Dems have been um, um, not only outperforming expectations in special elections in, in what was supposed to be a Republican wave election, but in fact um, outperforming uh, Biden's performance in the 2020 election. So yeah, almost almost every midterm election, the president loses um, ground in the Congress, but I, I think that the president will gain ground in the Senate and will not lose votes in the House from voters, um, but only will lose ground in the House because of gerrymandering. And you had said that, you, that specifically it was in terms of the special election that has most recently tipped, uh, special elections that have tipped you in that direction. Which ones were you thinking about specifically there, Ken? Yeah, I think New York 19 is a really big one because New York um, is um, unlike unlike a lot of the Republican states. You know, so, so New York um, tried to do a gerrymander um, in favor of Democrats and and make it easier for the actually the gerrymander would have allowed Dems to pick up four more seats in New York and um, the the New York courts found that that was um, uh, an unconstitutional gerrymander under New York's constitution and also found um, that, that that they had the power to draw redraw the maps you know which is different say than in Ohio and North Carolina where courts found that uh, gerrymanders were unconstitutional under those state constitutions but that they would just go ahead and use the unconstitutional republican maps anyhow because the courts didn't have the power to redraw the maps so New York redrew the maps in an extremely republican friendly way and they and to make all the their their stated goal was to make all the um elections more competitive and, and you know making all the elections more competitive in a state that's overwhelmingly democratic um, is is a is a fav- very favorable to Republicans, and so so the the new New York map is 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 much more favorable to Republicans than than any map that's been in New York in decades. And New York 19 is a district that um, this can be confusing because it's currently held by a Democrat who left to become lieutenant governor, um, but that's before the maps were redrawn. And the maps were redrawn right. so that the new New York 19, you know, would actually have a Republican advantage. Um, and it turned out to go um, 52-48 for the Dem. And uh, I think that's a bellwether. There had been a handful of other special elections around the country over the past few weeks, um, including in the, the ones in Alaska um, uh, that, 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 that Sarah Palin had to um, participate in for that House seat. And, and that one was also, um, although that's a complicated um, rank choice voting system with um, the, the Dem came in first in terms of the plurality in that election, um, which was not uh, anticipated. And uh, um, although there's still another another there's an, another round now. Um, but uh, yeah, and I, I, I'm, I'm spacing on what all five were, but I did see the statistic that of five special elections that took place in the last two months um, for the House for House seats that were vacant. Um, every one of them, the the Dem candidate performed better than Biden performed in those districts in the 2020 election. And so I, I think that's a pretty significant um, uh, uh, point. 
So, you know, to get maybe into the nitty gritty of this just a little bit, because we're coming closer and closer to uh, the midterms, right? So, you know, uh, on most individuals' docket, you've got Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, and Wisconsin as being kind of your, the top races for the determination of who's going to win or lose in those seats. Uh, and, And when you look at the polling in those areas, when you look at what at least right now voters are reporting as being their their top issue, inflation still ends up being an economic issue, still end up being the top issue. Does any of that give pause to the analysis that you're that you're pitching there, or do you think that that's we just still haven't seen the longer intact term of things like and and I actually tend to agree uh, you know on the tactical side. I, mean, I, I think I made that clear in the in the last segment that I, I think that the 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 loan forgiveness is a win for Democrats electorally. Yeah, well, I, I think the the Senate, you know, you can you did it exactly the right way in my eyes, looking at the actual states. Um, you know, Pennsylvania has really turned into such a blowout for Fetterman that the the um, Republican National Committee has stopped uh, spending money there. Uh, the Republican, um, that is the Senatorial Campaign Committee. Um, and that's currently held by Toomey, an incumbent Republican. He's not running for re-election, but I, I think there's actually no doubt that Pennsylvania is going to be a, a Dem pickup. And uh, Wisconsin is sure looking that way, too. Now, um, you know, it's true that um, Ron Johnson managed to win a few times against Russ Feingold, um, even when polls were showing that Feingold would win. Um, but right now, um, I don't think there's a single poll that has Johnson within seven points of, of Barnes, um, the Democrat, uh, the, the young lieutenant governor um, who the Dems nominated. So I think Wisconsin is very likely to be another Dem pickup. Um, and then some of the states um, where the Republicans thought they could have take backs, um, like Arizona and Georgia, um, it, it doesn't seem to be panning out. Right. So I think the states where the, the Republicans thought they could get a pickup, I don't see any state where that looks likely. And I see at least two states where, where Dem pickups look likely. I don't I don't know if you have particular states that you're seeing differently than I'm seeing it. Well, one that I'd add, but we, we can't really I, I didn't bring it up because we can't talk about it yet. New Hampshire is a spot where we might see a, a Republican pickup, but we haven't had the GOP primary. They have a really late primary there. It's not till uh, until September 13. So there, there is a a potential because even right now, that's a that's polling against generic candidates. Um, that's uh, uh, Senator Hassan. Uh, you know, does, she's not polling particularly well right now, even against the, uh, a generic ballot. It'll be interesting to see there. But I, I'm always hesitant to. We have in the United States, we have personalized. Uh, politics, and so in that sense, I'm always hesitant to say precisely what will happen to be that candidate sitting there. But yeah, um, I think um, New Hampshire would be another one I'd, I'd want to look at where I think Republicans could pick one up. Yeah, I, I can't disagree. It's, it's too early to tell there. But I, I as a Dem, I take some uh, heart from the fact that um, uh, McConnell heavily tried to recruit uh, Governor Sununu to run for that Senate seat, and he would have been an extremely strong candidate. But um, Sununu didn't do it. And I, I'm, I'm not, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure who the candidate's going to be, but I don't think um, any of them were the kind of people that McConnell was considering top tier candidates. Now, a place that also I think is worth looking at when I'm analyzing elections is what's happening at the more local elections in the primaries, because oftentimes those local elections are being are are the deciders for who's moving on into the general elections. And so that was saying, you know, 
some of the things you take a look uh, in Oklahoma. I think Oklahoma it serves well as a state to look at when you want to see what Republicans are thinking and doing. And in terms of Oklahoma, we went deeply Trump in local elections with individuals like Ryan Walters for Secretary of Education, despite a bunch of his um, scandals and background. Uh, likewise, uh, we see uh, the seat coming forward for Einhoff. Um, Mullen, who already was was way ahead and then had a huge bump when uh, uh, Trump decided to weigh in on his behalf. Uh, you know, uh, he's way out there in, in, in Trumpville. So and, and that's one of the things that, you know, it was talked a lot about early on. And I was always a little hesitant about this. But I have wondered more recently as I continue to see some of the outcomes of these elections versus the polling up front to what extent we still see some underpolling of Trump. Well, I, don't, I don't mean Republicans, but if specifically the, the, the Trumpian wing of the party. They often seem stronger on election day than we seemingly analyze them in the polls. So I'm, I'm always trying to hedge my bet on that front a little bit. Do you, ever, do, you, do you feel that way? Do you see any of the data in that light as well when, when you're making that analysis? I think it depends what state you're talking about. Um, you know, clearly that didn't hold true in um, uh, Georgia, where um, uh, Kemp and Raffensperger, you know, held on against um, Trumpier That's fair. primary That's challengers fair. Uh, in a Republican primary. Um, I, I think, yeah, in, in states, I would say this, in states that don't have um, large metropolitan areas or in states where the population is dominated by people who don't live in large metropolitan areas, I, I can't disagree with your analysis, but I... I, I think the the the, the kind of um, Trumpier type of, of Republican candidate doesn't play well uh, um, with um, one sort of strain, like what we, what we might call the Chamber of Commerce Republicans or the Wall Street Republicans, who tended to be uh, powerful in in um, suburbs around big cities, um, you know, professional class um, suburban Republicans. So I think the more that the, if you're in a place where that that t- type of Republican is a significant voting block, um, and I, you know, I think the suburbs of Atlanta would be an example of that. Um, then I think that's that's not good uh, for for the Trumpier candidates. But if if you're in states where more of the the Republican voters are rural and exurban, then I think you know they, they those areas those kinds of areas seem very enamored with the Trumpier candidates. Well, Ken, as we're kind of we're, we're we we went long on a couple of these stories. I want to get one more story in before uh, before the end of the episode. Uh, and and, and, I th- and I just think it's kind of I think this is going to continue to be a big issue. Uh, so if you're okay, let's move and, and chat a little bit about the recent ruling against Cleveland State University, not too far from you, uh, where a, a federal district court ruled that remote proctoring is a violation of the Fourth Amendment. So uh, moving to the land of the legal. So for those of you who aren't in academia, you might not be aware of this shift. Uh, even large tests like the LSAT, for example, which had always been these in-person exams, many traditionally in-person exams moved to having either remote components or being completely remote. And as a matter of fact, many of the major companies that provide what are called learning management systems for uh, universities have ways of trying to ensure integrity during testing at remote locations. Now, for most of us, we didn't always use all of those features unless you were teaching in online modalities. But I don't know, Ken, you and I, we, we probably both have a bit of a bias against those modalities. 
but that changed for all of us with COVID, right? And so with COVID, uh, there was a need for these kinds of moves. And we haven't exactly moved all the way back. There's a lot of advantages to using uh, uh, kind of proctored exams. And one of the ways that these things can be proctored is you can actually have artificial intelligence uh, during your exam examining what's happening with your webcam. So it's listening and watching you during the period of while you're doing this. Sometimes you're going to provide a student ID even to the person who's in front of the camera is the same as the person who's in the ID. Uh, And sometimes, as is the case uh, for the system being used at Cleveland State University, you then actually take like a scan of your room. So you're going to spin your notebook in a scan. That's exactly what you do actually right now for the LSAT. I, I think that's going to have fascinating implications for graduate exams. Uh, but be that as it may, this is what Cleveland State required a student to do. Uh, and the student in this case did it and then afterwards argued that this in court was a violation of the unreasonable searches and seizures uh, clause of the Fourth Amendment. Uh, U.S. District Judge uh, uh, Philip uh, Calabrese ruled that uh, privacy outweighed the interest of room scanning. I'm really curious what you think about this, uh, Ken. And I mean, again, this is a district court ruling. This has not made it to the Supreme Court yet. So, you know, it's not a all over the country applicable ruling, but it certainly indicates a possibility that other judges, other justices might make similar rules. What do you think about this? Well, I, I think it'll the impact will be more limited than it might seem because one of the facts in this case, which I think was important, is that um, this student um, had received a, a, a disability accommodation, and, and for various reasons, um, it wasn't possible for the the school to just require him to come in and take an in-person exam. Um, I think for the large majority of students, where the school could offer them a choice and say, "Look, you can you can voluntarily consent." to um, have these webcams uh, looking into your house and you can you can waive your Fourth Amendment rights if you want to take the exam at home or if you don't want to do that, you don't have to. You, you, have, you come in and take it in the, in the classroom. Um, th- this opinion doesn't have any impact on, on, on those students and that's almost all students. Um, so so this, this only really said if, if a student actually can't come in and has no other choice um, uh, but to take the exam at home, based on a disability accommodation that he's already received, uh, then it becomes an unreasonable search of his home to require him to um, uh, have a, a webcam look into his home as, as the only possible means by which he can take the exam and, and get credit in the course. So um, for most students saying, you know, you have to come in to school to take the exam, or you have to go to a, a, a testing center to take the exam, or you have the option at your election to waive your Fourth Amendment rights and take the exam at home with um, invasive camera software, that's still permissible even after after this opinion. Um, I, I tend to think that this opinion is, you know, a, a bit of a, um, you know, it's it's a Trump judge, Judge Calabresi. I, I think, you know, he wanted to take a little bit of a shot at higher ed and make it seem like this was. A, a uh, I hadn't even thought about that. That's yeah. a. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I, I put it in that context. I, I, I think it probably will get appealed to the for, to the to the Sixth Circuit here in Cincinnati. I, I think there's a chance that it'll be sustained. It probably will be sustained. I think the ruling, you know, in terms of a student in the position that they they have no other option but to take the exam at home. Um, I, I, I think that you know that that's probably a reasonable ruling. But I think it was written 
in in much broader language that makes it sound, you know, and I think a lot of the news headlines that probably you were reading as well make it sound like this has broader application to all students. And uh, and I think it was just written on that way on, on purpose to kind of make a, a, a splash and to get on Fox News and all that. I was just even shocked reading the opinion that, that the Fourth Amendment was evoked in that kind of context of being a search. I, I, I was just a little bit surprised even by that leap, but I hadn't thought about it in terms of potentially being specifically a shot at higher education. And I, had, I, was, I was focusing maybe too much on you know, just even the use of that, the Fourth Amendment, which would, that was the part that surprised me. I mean, you're right, it's a little more narrow, I think, than the news is making it. But nevertheless, I was, I was still a little bit shocked just by the, uh, the upholding of it on Fourth Amendment grounds. But I had not thought about, I, to be honest, I had not even looked up to see who had appointed, uh, uh, yeah. appointed him. Okay, so listeners, I'm really sorry about this, but this week, Ken and I, had some technical difficulties with our recordings. Uh, So right at this point here, as we were talking about the Fourth Amendment, we ended up kind of sounding like chipmunks. So we're taking a look at that. I'm taking a look at that. You have my deepest apology. So I know we're ending the show a little bit weird, but this is still the spot. So if it seems a little bit short or a little bit off, that's what's going on this week. Now, that is the show. So if you're not already a supporter of The Politics Guys, we hope you'll consider becoming one. Without our supporters, we can't keep the podcast going. And you get all kinds of good stuff, like ad-free versions of what you're listening to right now. Plus, we do this whole new midweek show. Ken and I are going to be taking on the Constitution one article at a time. Well, really, one piece of an article at a time with book readings and reports. Mike and Jay are going to be doing a book club where you can read things in advance. We've got a lot of really cool content that you get on the midweek show when you become a supporter. Supporters also get to join our very active and a lot of fun Politics Guys Discord group. There's even other Politics Guys benefits and all kinds of different levels of support. So to check it out, all you got to do is head to patreon.com slash politics guys. If you'd like to support us on Venmo, we're at politics guys. You can also support the show through PayPal. All of our support links are always in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. Now, I understand this. If you'd like to get that midweek show, you want to follow us along for the Constitution, but you're just not in a position to do so financially, that's not a problem at all. Just shoot an email to Mike at mike at and he will get you all set up. Now, whether you're a supporter or not, we really would appreciate it if you would subscribe, rate, and review us on whatever podcast app you use. There are episodes to be shared on social media. We love that as well. If you've got a comment, question, correction, gripe, manifesto, or just some other kinds of things you want to share with us, you can always shoot that to mail at politicsguys.com. If you're a supporter, don't forget you can always reach out to us on Discord. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you'll find the links for all of this in the show notes. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and once again, a special shout out to our newest executive producer, Don Oglesby. Thanks, Don. We'll be back with a new show this uh, this week. I hope you'll join us then.